And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. Yes, this is Annie, and it's Solidarity Breakfast. Lovely day outside. If you're podcasting, it might be lovely when you're listening to us. Uh, iTunes, uh, notice that all the uh, 3CR uh, podcasts are all available now on the iTunes list. So if that's your go, then that's the way to get us, if you don't go online to our uh, webpage. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Yes, and I'm very excited today because it's December 1st. It's uh, West Papuan Flag Raising Day. Yes, and we've got a huge flag up behind Annie in the studio. And yeah, well, all day today there'll be flag, morning star flags raising up around the world. So Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. And uh, if you want to go to uh, an official event, you can go to Trades Hall today up in uh, the corner of Ligon and Victoria parade and uh, be part of celebration starting at one. Yes. So there'll be a West Papuan community there and some food cooked by uh, Auntie Natalie. (laughs) She always does an amazing job. And yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. And you've uh, spent this uh, week uh, collecting some information from the West Papuan community here about why it's so important this day. Yep. So let's hear that now. On December 1st, 1961, the Morning Star flag was raised alongside the Dutch flag in West Papua, the first tangible sign of the road to independence. Unfortunately, that road was cut short as the international community instead handed West Papua over to Indonesia. And West Papuans have been fighting for their freedom ever since. My name is Rebecca Langley, and I spoke with some women from the local West Papuan community about the Morning Star flag and what it means to them. First of December is most important for us, like all of us. It's Papua, some kind of happy and sad too. It's like mm. we can like see from the back, like this happened before, like all people like the Pijong, like all the chief of West Papua, and they've been struggled to want to uh, fight for freedom, and they've been killed. And we can, when the most important when we saw the flag is. Rise up in Indonesia when even no if just like even just symbol or when they're wearing something like for the t shirt or something like that, they're gonna I don't know what's 
they can do everything what they want they because they say it, that's like a, something kind of like illegal for them or something mm. like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because they already make laws. So if we were raise the flag and we, they're going to take us to jail or maybe they kill us. No, mm. maybe, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. they kill yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. In here, we have like peace. We can put everywhere, like even just when we just going the street. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so happy because I can rise up like when I make like a video and they saw from the back home they cry. They happy because uh, they cry because of happy because we can they can saw their flag is rise up. Yeah. But in West Papua or Indonesia they can't. Mm. Yeah. That's why I can like I do behalf of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I learned about the 1st of December for West Papua in Australia is the happiest moment of their life because they were raising the flag, we sing the, our, their anthems, I even learned a bit of their song and uh, it's sort of like memorized for them, it's like the day of their independence but turns out to be, it was a nightmare that I hear about, there's a lot of people who get killed just to raise that flag. Mm. To us, or to me, it's mean nothing, it's just only material that raising, but to West Papua, it's a lot, but to Indonesian, even worse. Yeah. They just go crazy if they see that flag is raising up everywhere. They really do. I, I just can't believe it, how they get mental. Their brain cannot think. Because of that red and white star with blue and white stripe. And to me, I've never seen the most beautiful flag that raised in the air. That color it was just per superb. And I'm proud if I to be carried that flag. The red means blood that's shared in West Papua. There's a lot of leaders died because of that flag. It's sad for me to hear about that, but I hope one day, if we're continually raising everywhere in every country this, the Morning Star flag, God will see that and he will give that freedom. Why should we, Papua have to be haunted like an animal? Or have to die because of that, the flag, or because of the wealth? Mm. They, de they deserve to live as they're supposed to be lived. So that's what I, what I found out about this flag. It's a beautiful flag and a very good memory every time on the 1st of December. Even though I'm tired, sometimes I have to cook for many people. But <laughs> yeah. I get the joy out of they were jumping, dancing, your spun, anything, you name it. Just to raise that flag. Yeah. And I wish they can do that in Papua too, but unfortunately they can't.
kita juga senang kalau ada pendukung-pendukung dari negara-negara lain karena kami ingin merdeka juga. She's overjoyed. She's really happy to hear about other countries has raised a flag for us. So therefore, they are really, uh, really happy to see West Papua independent. Saya bisa menyampaikan. Saya mengucap syukur dan terima kasih banyak kepada mereka karena itu sudah tanda-tanda mereka mendukung um, kita punya perjuangan. So she just like to say thank you for those people who raised the flag and in her heart she's overjoyed because everybody agreed for the West Papuan to be independent. Saya merasa bendera itu itu tanda bahwa dan itu memang ke kesukaan kami orang Papua bahwa bendera ini akan itu kami punya apa apa kayak bulan dia punya logo kan dia itu itu paling penting untuk kami orang Papua kan kami tahu bendera ini akan jadi satu untuk kami bisa lepas dari Edema dukun untuk bisa melepaskan kami dari jadi kita berjuang untuk tentang ini. Tapi perasaan perasaan melihat bendera ini bagaimana rasanya? Saya semang semuanya saya senang saya senang saya lihat tapi belum dia belum resmi pada apa pada saat ini belum resmi tapi dulu sudah resmi tapi mereka putuskan tu sekarang apa ni banyak orang dukung kami saya lebih senang saya lebih senang terus ya saya punya hati gembira dan apa kayak sedih lebih banyak berkibar terus supaya kami merasa berdiri sendiri punya hak. We almost have this flag rising up before they change their mind. And to see the flag, the color, the texture are really very brightness from distant. People can see the flag so beautiful to be on the pole. And also, she said, uh, we nearly almost, but if we have our independence, and that flag will be up in the air, as always, it will make her the happiest moment of her life. Terus kami melihat dia itu, kita merasa sedih. Karena bendera dibikin orang Papua banyak sudah mati gara-gara hanya bendera ini. At the same time, seeing this flag, it makes her tears dropping in her cheeks because of that flag so many people died killed until today jadi kami ingin supaya biar sudah kami ada dia naik di tiang supaya kami ini ada rasa bebas begitu seperti negara-negara lain because of everybody supporting West Papua to be independent and that's why on the 1st of December all over the world has raised this flag she feel happy because there's a lot of people supporting West Papua. Let that flag raise, never bring it down ever again. That's what her message is to everybody. This piece was produced at 3CR Studios. I would like to thank Mama Babuan, Sister Yvonne and Auntie Natalie for all the amazing work that they do. And if you would like to hear more, tune in to The Voice of West Papua every Tuesday from 6.30 to 7.30pm on 3CR Community Radio, 855am.
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca and uh, we're going to have a yarn with Dr. Susie Latham from Curtin University. Uh, she is uh, interested in talking about the divisive language by politicians in the media following the Burke Street uh, events uh, from a number of weeks ago. So, uh, hello, Dr. Susan Susie Lathan. How are you this morning? Hello. Yeah. I'm good. How are you? Good. Let's hope it's as uh, pleasant weather-wise where you are as it is here in Melbourne. Um, you, you've uh, made some uh, uh, observations about political language, divisive language politicians were in, uh, involved in in the media after the Burke Street attack. Do you want to uh, give us some understanding of why you believe it was so divisive? Sure. Look, um, what's happened is that, that there was a group, uh, a number of groups this week that put out a press release just to show some solidarity with the Muslim community because I think that um, particularly because the Burke Street incident was so close to the Victorian election, you can see that um, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton have jumped on board and tried to, instead of um, you know leading the community to unite in the wake of a, a tragic event, they've actually tried to use that for political gain. So we had um, a number of university centres, some anti-racist groups, and um, so on, sign a, a statement basically saying that we don't believe that that sort of leadership is what we need, that we need to unite and um, using people and communities for electoral advantage is really, you know, d- disgraceful. And I think that what happens is that even, like, now that the election's over, um, the consequences of that language still remain. You're completely correct. It's interesting that you should say this because it was pointed out to me that uh, the Liberal Party here in Victoria tried to uh, emphasise this law and order element and anti-Muslim connection by uh, doing using the uh, collection of flowers outside Pellegrini's, the uh, workplace. Yeah. yeah. We, and uh, what they seem to not realise is that they'd stepped over a line uh, where yeah. where people had found this, you know, uh, kind of disgusting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The um, the discussion uh, actually that's another point because the fellow, the poor fellow that was uh, uh, killed, he came to Australia as part of the Italian migration, and uh, yeah. it's been pointed out that the people who came when he came were the people who were uh, being targeted with uh, outrageous levels of racism. So this is a very important point. Uh, People have amnesia about this past, but really the same kind of uh, anti-racist behaviours, anti-people of any sort, uh, is is, is a... uh, Obviously, some politicians believe that this is a mechanism for creating fear within the population and which they can then translate into votes. Yeah, and Along I think it does, it does work to a degree as well. And I think that there's been a similar um, thing happening in Victoria with the African community. And there's a really great article in the Saturday paper last week, I think, by Nayadol Neon about... How, how the damage to the African community as well from the same thing, this sort of African gangs, everyone's too scared to go out to restaurants, all this stuff that most people know is not true, but 
that some people will be taken in by. Um, but it, what it means is that, like, afterwards, I, I saw a tweet that she said that um, some a, uh, African basketball match that had been held every year for 15 years now is unable to find a stadium for their game. So the whole community gets tarred with the brush of a few, the acts of a few. And, you know, this doesn't happen in the general population. Uh, yeah, that's right about the basketball team. Uh, and uh, since then, Yarra Council has offered, uh, if if they, if they need a place to do this, Yarra Council has offered them facilities. But you're right, uh, it's all very well to have an... Uh, yeah, I know that's just something that's come about. I, I noticed it too. But like you're, what you're pointing out is that there's real-world effects for real yeah. people when someone from uh, a political party thinks that it, they're just running a promotional activity. The, uh, yeah, and right. but and I suppose the key point that you're making is that politicians have responsibilities. They're not just that uh, uh, they have responsibilities as leaders, apparently, of a community. Yeah, and look, I think that you know there are some politicians, to their credit, who speak out. But I think that when we've got leadership like Scott Morrison and Peter Darden, I think what it, it, it means that. Ordinary people have a heightened responsibility to speak out. So whatever, like like you've got a um, platform here on your radio show, it's fantastic that you're promoting this stuff. Everyone who has any platform at all should really stand up and 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 take on this role because we can't leave it to people like them. They're obviously not interested in you know looking at the whole community. They're interested in just cheap, quick political points. Were you uh, particularly interested in the uh, Victorian? election results because it would appear that this scare campaign which uh, everybody thinks you know when they start beating the drum of law and order that it's it's a surefire winner and in actual fact it didn't win this time yeah i mean i think um it's great the result i think it's really heartening but i think it would be a mistake to think that um to read it completely as a rejection of that sort of um agenda like i think that people can still for example have voted labor and rejected that liberal um feel but that is not necessarily because they reject the racism like i think that um, particularly in i know the statistics around um racist attitudes towards Muslims, like it's a very high level. I think the, the, some of the research has shown that 63% of people would be concerned if a relative married a Muslim. And if you ask, a, if you ask people face-to-face or like over the phone, um, do you have concerns about Muslims, about 25% of people will say yes. But if a person is allowed, this is in a randomised and completely sort of legitimised study, allowed to just fill it in online, it rises to over 40%. So I think that there is a a sort of latent a level of um, concerns that is, is not completely ameliorated, but I think it's um, the election result is, is fantastic, but I think that there's still that thing there that can be exploited, and I, I think that there are still people who voted Labor who probably are concerned about Muslims or Africans or some of these groups that have been picked on, but they're not concerned enough to change their vote. So what it's really about is the other, and when they target particular groups of people as the other, it has extreme effects on those groups of people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, you're in Western Australia, is that right? 
Well, I'm actually I'm affiliated to Curtin in Western Australia, but I actually live in Melbourne. Oh, right. Okay, because I was wondering, I was, I was wondering if there was uh, anything that could be said about other states of Australia. You know, because we're talking about federal liberals using this as yeah. a method of dividing our community what you're really talking about is i mean you're f- focusing uh, you're right about muslim because i mean muslim is a religion and there are quite a lot of people don't seem to realize that uh, actually uh christianity is in a sense a progression or or uh, allied to the muslim faith they they don't realize this they they see it as being some sort of other thing uh, yeah, it's just a bit odd, really. Yeah, there's a lot of commonalities um, between Christianity and Islam. Yeah, but I guess the main thing is that you know, look, whatever whatever people's beliefs are, we're all human beings at the end of the day. Everyone wants to just you know go to work, go home, you know, have their friends and their family, and and do their usual things, and they don't want to have politicians on the radio sort of trying to tell the whole rest of the community that there's some sort of danger and particularly in the wake of Burke Street to sort of insinuate that the whole Muslim community you know knows exactly who's you know about to commit a crime and that they're all somehow in on it and responsible for trying to stop it whereas no other community is you know made to have these ridiculous kind of assumptions. What you're saying is there are rational demands. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. And what do you think, uh, you mentioned before that there were platforms like this radio show and uh, other platforms and places where people can speak out, but what do you think the language that we should be using? Because often when you uh, talk about counter-discourse, like we don't want to buy into the language that's already being used to set an agenda. And, yeah, because even though we might be saying uh, that it's not, uh, like we might be talking about it in a negative way uh, and and calling it out, it's still yep. for some people it's still kind of those words. Mm. That's it ma- it what makes they it hear. an issue. It makes yeah. it an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's really tricky. I know. I mean, we sort of you know, struggle with this as well. But I think the main thing is to just, like, call out bad behaviour when it's happening um, because when it, if you don't, then firstly, like, other people, the, the people who are the targets can assume that everyone agrees with them. So, and also there is no counter-narrative. So I think it's important to sort of speak out at the time and I think it's also just important to... Um, emphasise solidarity. So just like, you know, like this is what we tried to do with this statement and getting all these different non-Muslim organisations to just stand up and say, look, we condemn this behaviour and we realise that um, it's got consequences for you and sort of like, you know, we've got your back or, you know, we're there for you or whatever. So, yeah, because I think that one thing that had happened after Burke Street was a lot of the Muslim... Um, people that I work with was just sort of saying, look, I just feel like this has never been as bad. It's just sort of got to the worst point possible. And and when I sort of suggested the idea of a statement, people just... And then I thought maybe it's just been a bit too late and it's sort of all moved on. And they just said, look, I think it's really important. It's just something that, you know, people like to hear. Mm. Who are the people who... Who are the people that have contributed to this statement? 
Um, there's the Challenging Racism Project at Western Sydney University, the Centre for Human Rights Education at Curtin University, the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation, All Together Now, which is the anti-racism charity, um, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, Federation of Community Legal Centres, Australian Jewish Democratic Society, Voices Against Bigotry and Our Race. There you go. That's a very fine effort to get it out there. Uh, Has it been picked up by other media outlets? No, unfortunately it hasn't, um, which is just, you know, what happens a lot of the time, I guess, with this. And that's why I think grassroots sort of efforts, wherever we can, whatever platform we've got, you know, if you're a public speaker, if you're a performer, if you're a... Um, unionist, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, whatever. I mean, we just use what, we, what we've got, I guess. We're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca. And uh, coming up, we're going to have a yarn with uh, Sue Thompson. G'day, Sue. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yeah, and the reason why we're talking to Sue is because she's the director of a film, The Coming Back Out Ball Movie, which is getting a release, a theatrical release, on December the 6th. You can go down to Nova. I'm not sure where else it's on. It's in around the country, in fact. Um, yeah, it's in um, one cinema in every capital city around Australia. <laughs> <laughs> They're good on you. <laughs> I know. It's so great. Yeah, it is so great because uh, it's quite a fascinating film, actually, because uh, it's, it uh, documents a ball uh, to celebrate LGBTQI elders. So uh, did the funding come before the event or uh, how did the film come about? Um, the event was created by a um, performance artist called Tristan Meacham and he had read a report by an academic in Melbourne called Catherine Barrett about the fact that older LGBTIQ plus were going back into the closet to get decent health care when they went into aged care. And he was so shocked about that as a young gay man that he thought, well, I need to do something in my work as an artist to acknowledge those people, you know, the pioneers who really kind of paved the way for young LGBTIQ plus people these days, you know, and do we know the history and do they, do people today actually know how those people suffered and what they went through? Um, and anyway, so he thought, I want to do something joyful like a ball to sort of celebrate them and say, you know, come back out. And that's why it's called coming back out because it's saying, come out for a night where you'll just be treated like kings and queens. And, um, <laughs> and so he organized, well, it took three years and he sort of, told me about it and I said well that's a documentary and he said obviously and will you make it so he invited me so he yeah he's a bit of a class act isn't he Tristan (laughs) yeah yeah because a very strong character and uh and uh, as you said it's a very joyful film but it's got some pretty important messages involved in it uh like uh, me watching it I was thinking uh some of the key elements were uh, culture. It's uh, one of the uh, people that you were speaking to in the film. She talks about how she lives in, I think it's Rosebud, in a Cranbourne. fairly oh Cranbourne, in a fairly isolated place. She's uh, as she's older, she she doesn't want to tell people she's gay because she feels a bit threatened, and uh, that uh, sh- she is outside her culture. 
So there's a whole culture that you, that is which is actually being celebrated here too, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's that um, you may have thought this while you're watching it too. Old people, no matter who they are, um, are isolated often and 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 tend to live within their four walls. And if they can't access services or friends or family, and some of these people in this in the LGBTI sector have been abandoned by their families as young people. They lost jobs, you know, they had to move cities, they might have even gone to jail. So as they've got older, they're more sort of scared out there. And in, as she says, in her community, in the lesbian community, she said, where do you meet people when you're old? Where do you go? So the film wanted to also show that um, to everyone, you know, like talk to these people. These people are part of our community. Invite them. Let's work with them. Let's not forget them, you know. Old people are just as important as young people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, that's one of the strong points in this film. You actually, how did you find the people in particular that you were going to follow? Or were there a variety of people and then a group of them became strong elements in the film? Yes, I think with any documentary you do tend to, every time you're talking to someone and meet someone, um, you listen to their story and then it's about if discussing with them if they'd be willing to share that in a public forum like a documentary. So, Yeah, it um, couldn't be more public, I, really, could it? <laughs> it couldn't yeah. be more public. <laughs> well, if you didn't tell, if your family didn't know, they're probably going to know now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that, it's a very sensitive arena and, you, and you, you know, look, that film took three years to make and that's why we're so proud of it. You know, that's why we want people to see it. It's like, don't, we want people to go to the cinema next week and, and tell their friends and family. And, you know, we want this hopefully in some way to try and affect a small part, bit of change in the world, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, did I answer you? No, no, you, uh, you, you did answer you. Oh, no, well, you didn't in a... Uh, one, one of the things is, well, did you find that there were common stories and then you uh, found people who were prepared to express those stories? Um, common's interesting. I mean, yeah, there was Commonality. Similar... I don't mean yeah, common, yeah, commonality. Yeah. yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. I think similar commonalities, yes, but look, as you would know, every human being <laughs> story is so different. But um, look, a lot, yes, a lot of these people were married because they were forced to get married or um, they didn't come out until later in life. So that was perhaps a commonality because of the sensitivity or the, the fact that it was illegal. 40, 50 years ago. Um, but um, I think I, you, you might, I don't know, if you might, there's a lot of people in that film and, and, and people say in documentaries you're not meant to have too many characters, but what I wanted to do was get as many people in that film as possible in that 83 minutes to show the world and also represent the LGBTIQ plus space. I mean, I haven't covered it fully, but I tried to make the film inclusive. So, yeah, I listen to stories and I would then just, you know, talk to people about how we could shape it and how we could put it into the documentary. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, it, you're credited with someone else as the writer of the film and, you know, documentaries, uh, you, like you said, 83 minutes, how do you get uh, so many uh, experiences out there? But, well, uh, Rod mm? is the co-writer and he happens to be Tristan's boyfriend but he's also an older man. He's Tristan's younger, but you know Roger's 
60 and he, you know, he has empathy for, um, you know, older gay people and he understands that, that world. So, yeah, so he had a lot of ideas about how to shape it too. It was very interesting to see the clips from uh, archival footage. That was very interesting. Yeah. I think um, I always knew that we'd have to show you some of the, you know, how how extraordinary and how sort of active this community was. Because I don't think, you know, younger people today don't even know that in the 70s stuff like that happened. So but I wanted to make a joyful film. I mean, I think you, you said that at the beginning. I really, it was important for me to show that these people are resilient and, they're, they haven't given up and they're not cowering away and they may be a bit isolated, but they're extraordinary, intelligent, you know, people who are really significant members of our community. Um, however, I couldn't make a film that didn't acknowledge what had gone before. So I put that archival footage in to say, you know, this is the world these people lived in and, and worked for some of them. Because, you know, someone like Judith, who's the sheep shear, she's 90. I know. know, amazing. It is amazing. What so, a woman. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's incredible. But, you know, their lives, it was really hard, you know. You know, what? The, part of that archival footage that really stuck out to me was the look of the cops, the way the cops looked. <laughs> and, and don't you reckon today you still see a fair bit of that, but you would, there would, there's a difference. Yeah, you know? yeah. There was something. Might have been at the very end, I don't, at the, when they've got that tiny bit of footage of marriage equality in the credits. Yeah. Where the police have got their police uniforms on and, and it's got the rainbow, their word police is written in rainbow colours. That's right. And he picks uh, the flag falls on the ground and he goes to pick it up. I know. I did. It's I noticed like, it. He's trying to pick it up. I'm glad you noticed that. We, we love that. I was like, yeah, they care. Like, they've been educated. The world is a very different space. Yeah, yeah. They, they were really spooky. It's worth seeing the film just to see how spooky the cops were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were, weren't they? I They're know, really they spooky. just look like robots and they all look the same. I know, it's really freaky. But the other thing about uh, the film is that you, uh, it's not all nicey-nicey. A lot of, especially the uh, different women that you talk to are very feisty. Lots of yeah, political views. Okay. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I, people talk about a community, but actually the LGBTIQ plus space is a collection of communities, you know, so... They actually don't all necessarily agree with each other and they do have different opinions and that's also what I wanted to say. These are not just a group of, you know, homogenised people, old people. These people are very different. They have very different political views and beliefs and values and, um, and, and yeah, I want you to sit and listen to that and, and be um, educated and entertained at the same time, I suppose. Yeah, uh, you do achieve this. Uh, the other touching thing about this film is the interactions, incidental interactions, very human interactions people have with each other. Mm. And they still say today, because, you know, they're all getting to know each other better. And um, Michelle, who's the transgender woman, has become, you know, closer to people like, well, even Artie and David, and she didn't know people like this. And she said, what's wonderful about being in this film is not only watching myself, because she fully transitioned through the whole three years we made the film. So at the beginning of the film, she was very reticent. And by the end of the film, she believes the film has changed her life. And I mean that quite seriously. Um, but anyway, so she said, yeah, you introduced me to new people and new ways of thinking so that she's much, she feels like, She's sort of 
um, more enlightened in a way and not so um, pushing her own political barrow in the transgender space. The other thing is that um, people give you confidences which actually increase, well, my knowledge and I presume other people's knowledge of people's personal journey. That piece, that piece where uh, Michelle is in the pool and talks about yeah. uh, um, letting go. Letting go. Mm. Yeah, that was very fascinating, actually. Well, that she said that. It's interesting. She still says that um, actually being in the film, having someone ask you questions that you'd never thought about, <laughs> yeah. um, helped her formulate her sort of life narrative more, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does yeah, make sense. And, and, and she said to, to have the, yourself, your identity valued enough for someone like Sue Thompson, a documentary filmmaker, to spend three years questioning me and getting to know me and asking me things that no one has ever asked me. She said it really helped validate who I am and also my relationship, you know, her relationship with her wife. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, in ways that she never expected. Did it? it, it uh, Barb's not much of a character in the film. She is a little bit, but uh, mm-hmm. that is. Um, did did and she came to the ball. I noticed she's in the footage yeah, of the ball. At the beginning of the process and the beginning of the documentary and the ball, there was no way Barb was going to be involved in either because the, <clears throat> Michelle had only come out to her, you know, a year earlier. And they were going through so much stuff and so much pain that, again, so I knew as a filmmaker that the audience, if possible, needs to just have a tiny sense of Barb to learn to to understand what she and Michelle are going through and their love for each other and their pain. Um, And so... She did not want to be in the documentary and um, me explaining how I felt that it would be, uh, it would elevate the story, it would also show an audience how difficult, traumatic, but the underlying love that they share for each other would be a really important part of Michelle's story slash therefore yours, Bob. And in the end, she agreed. You know, Bob's a photographer she spent a lot of time working in the arts and and she knew exactly what I was on about and she just was dealing with her own stuff and look in the end um we agreed just she said I don't want you to interview me and I said of course but I am prepared for you to have a few shots of me and yes she went to the ball and she loved it and we did the screening at the closing night of Myth then we did two at Acme and then one in Bendigo on the Myth Travelling Roadshow and she came to them all she loved it. She's like me. and Well, I've seen it a million times, but she and Michelle have seen the film seven times. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. That, I mean, I it's, what, it's proof that it's survivable. That, that, that's what's... Uh, uh, and I have to, at this point, talk about... Uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, forgive me, but uh, the blind man. They, Derek. Derek, yeah. His whole philosophy of life. The things, the, the, just the enormity of things that have happened to him. And his mm. ability to survive. I know. I mean, look, I think you scratched the surface of Derek. There's a, there's so much more to it, and I think you hopefully get a sense of that. Like, and as Lizzie says, he uses jest and 
um, sort of in a sense, his positivity to cover and manage the enormity of the losses and the pain in his life. So the ball itself was a huge success. It was amazing. So the ball was October 2017, and then he did do another one October 2018, but the film just deals with the one and will only ever deal with that one, and it was the inaugural coming back out ball, and it was incredible. And he got, you know, Melbourne's largest civic space and, and, and did what he wanted to do, made those people feel really, really special. And on the first ball, they, um, they didn't have to pay. So they came and had this incredible night of entertainment and, and food and wine and dancing and love and respect in the room. It was so, and, and, and each table was a mixture of people. It was really wonderful. And I guess, and I did by the end of it, well, I was thinking about the people themselves. They, yeah. their, their social uh, group would have expanded uh, exponentially because of that event. They didn't well, know that's, each that's other. What, that's what he, that kind of was the whole part of it, was like, meet each other. Don't let people be sitting isolated in a house. Don't ring them up, visit them, whatever. And for, yeah, so you're absolutely right. That's exactly, and, and again, through the documentary, because, you know, you get people out or we're talking about it and people organise friends and family to go and see it. It's, yeah, that's why art can help change the world, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. You're completely right. And the yeah. thing about it is that there was a big fuss made about this film because it was at, at MIF. But it's yeah. but it's um, important that it's now got a proper theatrical release, isn't it? Well, I think that's where I'm at. I'm, I feel like unless people come to the cinema, that's it for the film. This happened because, you know, for whatever reason, it was wonderful and, you know, a couple of thousand people saw it that night. But most of those people were connected to film and television in some loose way or they have a love for it. Now it's about getting it out into the community and for people, you know, on the street, you know, my mum and dad, anybody, come and see this film. Because if you don't see it next week, it will go off. And again, like so many Australian documentaries, we won't see it. That's right. Um, so it's the Coming Back Out Ball movie. It's going to be... Coming a- Back Out Ball movie starting at Cinema Nova in Carlton, Thursday the 6th of December. Thanks very much. A couple of screenings. Thanks, thanks for so thanks for talking to us, Sue. Thank you. You're listening to Free CR, eight five five AM, the voice of the community. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when, as we pointed out last week, the nervous excitement of the state election reached a crescendo, and how dare the ignorant masses? Well, let's background the background. We, listener, have long bemoaned the mistake, the calamitous mistake the electorate made four years ago, despite every pro-Victoria day-after-day warning by Lord Rupert of Wapping, through his Wapping sin, to alert us, warn us, inform us in its information role of just how dangerous, threatening, well, downright evil was, stroke is, the mistake the ignorant elected. Four years to prevent it ignored, when these past four years alerting us to the need to correct it, so how dare 
the ignorant masses defy Lord Rupert and come up with a many times more calamitous result. Although Lord Rupert would have seen some relief in the collapse of the even more evil Greens in numbers elected, although even most of those who lost increased their vote, but just that the Socialist increased its by more thanks to the caring business class party whom Lord Rupert advised us all to vote for as part, party's vote disappearing into the depths of Bass Strait and or those on the border of an upper house quota suffering from stuff what the ignorant people want deals which elected candidates only about point something of one percent of people are wanted elected like the eponymous Darren Lynchham High Party or the everyone must have a gun or something party and Darren said he was surprised at getting so many elected which given the bloke organizing for an appropriate fee the deals to undermine what the people wanted also works for Darren it's a bit hard to understand his surprise but we can only wish caring business class party supremo the lobster with a mobster had run a slightly less forgettable campaign because the size of the socialist landslide means policies like more freeways and environmental destruction especially with big economic guru Tim Vroom Vroom Palace who believes Melbourne should be covered with concrete cars, B-triples tar and cement and the privatisation giveaway and destruction of public housing will now proceed without constraint despite the obvious that in many seats traditional caring business class supporters vote, voted not for but against unless the leafy suburbs of charming people got excited at the prospect of a 19 year old student or a 72 year old nursing home resident not that I'm sure we didn't all enjoy watching the caring business class lot cop it. Given the choice, if it can be called that, given the choice, it's our one enjoyment on election night, watching the loser-lose. Who'll ever forget, well, of those who are around, who'll ever forget the bonus excitement of Malcolm Wage Freezer's tears in 1983? Although the current Canberra lot are shedding tears pre-poll as they also shed their MPs who were leaping off the crumbling cliff like lemmings. But to the man, the great man who never does wrong, and the US of the UN of the US of the world has finally conceded that its very, very, very close friend, the Saudi, Saudi Crown Prince, deserves condemnation for the murder of a fake news evil journalist as at the UN of the US of the UN of the world, its oh-so-even-handed ambassador Nikki Haley, the good guys, announced the whole world must condemn this heinous action in the most damning terms because evil, evil Russia... Oh, hang on, Russia? We did come into it. Oh, sorry, wrong issue. We obviously don't need more information about this one or never know either way. We know... So heinous, Donald has been forced to cancel his meeting with evil Russia big supremo Vladimir put in his place for treating so aggressively Donald's very, very, very close friend, Ukrainian big supremo Petro Perish Workashenko, whom the US of knows was forced to overthrow the elected government because the elected government so hated liberty, freedom and democracy, it believed being elected made it the government. And that... 
His supporters backing the coup wore the odd swastika didn't mean they were fascists. They just thought the swastika looked attractive. And poor Petro has been forced to declare martial law. And the way things are going in the US of with weak, weak men like Donald's former lawyer, whose weakness and lying Donald must have overlooked, suggesting the odd connection between evil Russia and Donald. But... That's business, and if there's a few trillion rubles floating around evil Russia, why not make the selfish evil Russians share it round a bit? The way things are going, mostly down, down, downhill, the idea of martial law must be more appealing to Donald by the day. Yet through all these lies, he remains so generous. That most generous action celebrating Thanksgiving last week, as traditionally he spares one turkey while the nation slaughters millions. I forgive Turkey for its aggression to my very, very, very close friend, the Crown Prince. Worst aggression ever, ever. Its outrageous attacks on my very, very, very close friend. Worst outrageous attacks ever, ever over a fake news journalist getting his just desserts. For criticizing, worst criticizing ever, ever on a cherished practitioner of liberty, freedom and democracy. And indeed, it is a neck-and-neck race between Turkey and Donald's very, very, very close friend in the liberty, freedom and democracy stakes. Imagine if the caring business class party Victorian result had happened in the US of to the Republicans, Donald would have declared it a raging success. Best result ever, ever. Back here, putting stakes into the poor, caring employers, promised last week we discussed this week the merchant of death who wants to move manufacturing workers onto the construction industry code. And I bet you've been waiting with baited all week to hear our in-depth coverage. C fails the workers, or sorry, fails the workers' manufacturer of trained killer munitions, has decided its workers should be considered construction workers. And sadly, it's a, no, it's no fault of fails the workers themselves. The code designed that companies with government contracts must keep the evil construction unions under control means the workers will, unfortunately, suffer reduced wages and conditions and entitlements. And as usual, the bloody evil union is carrying on as if fails the workers would deliberately use a gimmick to slash its workers' wages and conditions and entitlements. It probably didn't even know the wages and conditions under the construction code were lower than the agreement it had with the evil unions. Exactly, for all we knew, it may have had higher wages and conditions, spokesperson Rick Bloated told us. Of course, Rick, no one's blaming you. For, as Rick explained, the company realised manufacturing trained killer merchandise meant they were constructing something, the end product. And the union yet again displayed its intransigence by refusing to accept this most reasonable definition. And how's business going, Rick? Quite well. Plenty of good government contracts, although nothing a little bit of war wouldn't improve. Help us make a killing. (laughs) Get it? Uh, Sure, sure. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, good luck with that. And as for suggestions that nice train killer minister Christopher Payne in there played a bit of a role making sure he fails the workers, slashed workers' wages and conditions and entitlements, come on. 
Who'd believe that other than the biased evil unions? Like some commentators claim that Christopher's innocent comment, he'd refer all these people who've got it in for our keeping us secure Minister Constable Peter Duffer to the High Court if they referred poor Pete to the High Court was a threat. But the lemons leaping doesn't mean scuttle them and the team aren't getting things done, like approving a luxury resort and helicopter pad to bring in the filthy rich guests. Well, discerning travellers at the top end of the market in the company's own terms are proving smack bang in the middle of World Heritage listed Tasmanian wilderness. But the own... The only ignorant bodies suggesting there could be the odd bit of environmental damage are the True Blue Heritage Council, which says damage would be considerable, but what would it know? The Wilderness Society, clearly biased, the UNESCO World Heritage Body itself, and the Aboriginal Heritage Council, who carry on as if they own the bloody place. But thankfully, the Minister's advisor ignored all that and declared there would be no significant damage. He's obviously the real expert. And the company pointed out, there's a significant chunk of wilderness hived off for conservation's sake, and then there's a mixed-use area. See, the hived-off bit, thanks to the company, will now be a mixed-use area. Notice IKEA plans to open pop-up smaller, smaller stores, although the plan has hit a, a bit of a stag. Not one French franchisee has yet worked out how to put the store together. Oh, and former big supremo Tiny, a bit more for the bosses, wrote an article last week, a book review actually, under the headline, Leaders Can't Dismiss Deplorables. And if anyone would know, but surely a sub-editor with a wicked sense of humour. Finally, down at the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission, the evidence has been consistent. Every witness has sworn she or he knew nothing about any of this, and it was everybody else as they all pointed to each other. Listener, whatever happened to Honour Among Thieves? Good morning. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, just before we go to Don Sutherland, we've got a few uh, events to tell you about. So today uh, there's a Maisil benefit at 62 St George's Road, Northcote. Um, they're raising money for the Mapuche Aboriginal Struggles for Indigenous Land Exchange 2020. Uh, so there's going to be lots of bands and food and, yeah, please... Uh, come down and support that. Um, the event is will be held on unceded Wurundjeri land. Um, and also we have <clears throat> uh, at 10am there will be a Stopadani uh, memorial for the future. Um, that's today as well at Federation Square at 10am this morning. Yes, that's right. And, uh, of course, the Mapuchu uh, 
benefit, which is on at one. Uh, it might conflict with your desire to go and be part of the uh, West Palpuan uh, flag raising ceremony at uh, Trades Hall at one o'clock. Two, two, two important things. Uh, the Mapuche uh, issue is uh, in Chile, and uh, it's uh, a land grab. Surprise, surprise. Um, but, yeah, it's quite interesting to be having a memorial for the future. I asked, oh, memorial for the future. Yes, it's uh, Stop Adani. Uh, it follows on from the uh, school kids' uh, uh, strike on November the 30th, that was Friday, uh, against uh, a continued depletion of uh, the environment. Uh, they maintain that... Uh, they uh, have a stake in the future. Apparently, Federation Square uh, is there's going to be a symbolic burial. But anyway, let's move on to Don. G'day, Don. How are you? Uh, good morning, Annie, and hello, Rebecca, and all of your listeners. Yeah, and also Tilly. Tilly's here as well. Hi, Don. Hello, How's it Tilly. going? How are you? Yeah. Now, you wanted to speak about uh, the strike, uh, the kids' uh, strike for climate. There was such yes, a good well, turnout it's, it's one of three very interesting strikes that have been going on over the last few weeks. And what makes them interesting is that they are all, um, to one degree or another, defiant. Uh, the, uh, the magnificent strikes engaged in, the school strikes engaged in by, I think, primarily secondary school students, but not only secondary school students, is defiant in the face of all of the persuading that uh, uh, that Morrison and people of his way of thinking... Do, do you think they were doing persuading? <laughs> I thought they were just sounding like angry old men. <laughs> it was actually um, uh, really wonderful because it just inspired more um, young people to join in, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's not unusual, by the way, but there have been previous... Uh, uh, big strikes in Australian history that have been, in a sense, egged on by the opposition to them, uh, by employers and uh, and governments sympathetic to employers. But that's another matter. So that's one. I think. And now I think the interesting question to pose about that is that um, I th I think probably a good proportion of uh, the students who were joining in on those strikes would have had some support at least from their parents. Which leaves begging the interesting question, which is how long since their parents or how likely are their parents to join in defiant industrial action around uh, wages and conditions and workers' rights? And uh, there's not much of that happening, although a little bit. In the month of action recently completed where there was escalated uh, national days of actions with big demonstrations on working days, there were lots of people joining in that who were doing so on the basis of using up some leave and so on. Uh, but there were some who were there who had left their workplaces. And to my knowledge, across all of those actions, those who did actually strike on that day in order to attend those rallies organised by the ACTU and Labor Councils were, in fact, taking unprotected industrial action. And they were threatened. They, the um, construction workers in particular were threatened with uh, large fines. Yes, and, and but if, to my knowledge, there's been no one... That hasn't happened. Nobody's been pursued. 
yes, which is an indicator of the uh, concern that the employers have at the rising... In a, in a sense, it's hard what to make of it, but it's just possible that employers are working out that they don't want to um, prod the bear anymore. And so then the third one is a much smaller one. Yesterday in Sydney, uh, working women, mainly in the CBD, stopped work at, I think, at around 3.30 thereabouts uh, because that was that was the moment in the day where they had earned the proportion of wages against the uh, average weekly earnings for men. In other words, they were, they were stopping work for as long as they were being paid. Now, if they did that, to the extent that they did that, also unprotected industrial action. And to my knowledge, again, no reports at all of anyone being prosecuted for that. So we have this situation where there is a good deal of nervousness on the part of employers and governments to pursue workers who are lifting the level of, if you like, unprotected industrial action. Now, it's interesting you should bring this. That's a very interesting point because when I asked uh, um, Morrison about wage theft at uh, this recent economic forum, he seemed to think that uh, all the uh, state and federal administrative procedures uh, were there to uh, crack down on uh, wage theft. do you think that they've actually got the capacity to pursue people? Because they obviously don't have the capacity to pursue employers that thieve from employees. Well, the short and, and, and most important answer is no, they don't. And, uh, the, the, and the proof of the pudding is in the eating because all, not so much this week, but all through last week, there were on three separate days, uh, reports of new companies and new sub-industry sectors being discovered as perpetrators of wage theft. That is, paying thousands of workers less than what they were legally entitled to. So they have not got the situation under control. And the idea that the Fair Work Ombudsman is a tough cop on the beat, which is an expression that is used in the union movement, by the way, is nonsense. Well, they don't even have, they don't, I mean, if they were serious, they'd actually employ people and also they would allow unions to do what they were used to be able to do, which is to check the books. Well, uh, I, I... the, the demand to check the books is actually, you're right, it used to be a very important part of what union delegates and union members would do on the job. And if the employer wouldn't voluntarily hand over the information, there were other means of doing it, as there still are, by the way. However, the, inter- the real tough cop on the beat, really, is the workers and the exercise of power on the job by workers. And, of course, that remains denied by the Fair Work Act created by the Labor government in 2009. Workers are denied the power to be themselves the tough cop on the beat. And uh, that is very different to a situation where uh, before 1996, and especially before 1993, 
workers could take, whether they were members of the union or not, were entitled to create an industrial dispute as a real dispute, that is, with industrial action, or as a paper dispute or a letter of demand to enable uh, uh, the issue to be conciliated and arbitrated. Now, that is what is denied workers at the moment, the capacity to use their power to create a grievance that then, uh, uh, using industrial action if necessary, to be able to get something like underpayment of wages fixed and pronto. That is the best and most effective cop on the beat. Delivering in any new Fair Work Act brought on by Labor more powers to institutions like the Fair Work Ombudsman and the Fair Work Commission are secondary of secondary importance to yep. the right of workers to pursue grievances using their industrial power on the job. So uh, all of this comes into sharp relief. Um, just by the way, I thought I should update everybody on the, what's happening with wages with particular reference to the annual wage review. And with that swings into then some discussion about what might happen with multi-employer bargaining, as it's being described at the moment. Multi-employer bargaining, and you yeah. called it sectorial bargaining. Also called sectoral bargaining. Sectoral. We'll I probably put it, uh, too many eyes in there. Um, just, just on the wages, though, yeah. um, there's no new developments in the national wage case. Oh, surprise, but surprise. But as is normal at about this time of the year, there is lots of new information now coming out about what will be the major economic arguments about wages at the national wage case. So just the just recently, uh, listeners can get this all. What I'm going to talk about very briefly now is all available for free at the Journal of Australia Political Economy website. Just Google that. There is say that again. Edition. Say that again. Journal of Australia, Australian Political Economy. Yep. There is a special theme issue on Labor's declining income share, and that's all about wages. And we don't mean the Labor Party. Uh, and uh, that's correct, yes. We're talking about the share of income going to workers in the form of wages, total wages, and its relationship to... Yeah, well, I suppose that's right. It's, it's Labor with a U, not Labor without... Very well put. Very well put. The second one announced just this week is a new book which is available in hard copy but costs a fair bit, but you can get it in digital format for free. It's called The Wages Crisis in Australia and it's edited by Jim Stanford and a couple of oh, other Jim Stanford. academics. Jim Stanford's and a pretty hot operator. He is indeed, and uh, I think there's weaknesses in his work, as he and I from time to time discuss, but um, the, it's a terrific uh, compendium of information about wages, including some perspectives from employers, uh, because it's just come out, I haven't been able to read all of that. But there is some terrific material on that, which will all be uh, very important information for activists and emerging activists in the Labor movement who are engaging in the Change the Rules campaign and are looking for the ammunition that they need in the verbal judo they have to do with people who are not convinced they should be involved or in the argy bar 
society with employers and employer sympathisers who uh, argue that employers are doing it extra tough. <laughs> just remind our listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and we're talking with uh, Don Sutherland. They think they're doing it tough. Uh, well, a lot of the, they do. If you go to the employer <laughs> website, life is a misery at the moment. Mm. Even though pro, uh, the profit share of wealth produced is at very is at uh, I wouldn't say record levels, but extremely high re- uh, levels relative, and that's. And well, well, you know, Don, it's funny because someone was telling me that uh, they live in Northcote, and when they first got to live there, which was a long time ago. It was, you know, just a general odds and sods and people who used, to, you know. But now there's so many expensive cars that uh, they they don't quite know which suburb they're living in. And when they walk along the river, they find that there are people living in the caves underneath the uh, bridge. Yes. That's the difference. Yes. And uh, when you talk about lots of expensive cars and so on appearing in um, in working class suburbs, traditionally working class suburbs... And that takes us into the interesting territory of what's going on with uh, debt, personal debt relative to corporate debt and government debt. But I don't have anything in front of me right now. Uh, So there is this visible wealth that we see uh, where we haven't seen it before is often underpinned not by hard work, but by personal debt. So which is not to say that hard work is not happening, quite the contrary, but it's the personal debt problem. It's more like white mice on on a wheel. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, and it is a big discipline against workers who know that the best way they they can uh, engage in a process to reverse inequality, to tackle their own experience of impoverishment, is to engage in collective bargaining and union industrial action they know that but the biggest one of the biggest disciplines on that is of course levels of personal debt but that's another story which we might cover in another discussion which is one of the things that uh, our friend Howard who's been wheeled out lately was good at um, wrangling <laughs> yes Howard and Costello were very good at setting that up and reproduced incidentally by Swan. Uh, but in a different sort of a way. But anyway, you wanted to talk about sectorial bargaining. Yes, yes, and then maybe a quick comment on the system at the end. What is now emerging is that there is now more public discussion about what Labor will do, and that includes in regard to the bargaining framework. And so you'll hear this... So what do you think they'll do? Uh, Well, I think they're uh, feeling the pressure that they should change the law to enable workers to have stronger powers for what they're calling multi-enterprise bargaining and which some people are calling sectoral bargaining. That just means that people who are working in the same industry can actually negotiate wages and conditions, right? Not necessarily. Okay. It It might be a multiple group of enterprises in a region. Oh, right. Or in a supply chain. Yep. Or it might be in an industry. Now, the industry one, if you go to industry-based bargaining and overlap it a bit with with occupational-based bargaining, it will, we already have the, uh, the basic framework to do that, and that is called award bargaining. Yeah, now, yeah. award bargaining is now prohibited, but there are 
four-year reviews of awards, it would be very straightforward to amend the Act so that awards could be varied at any time through claims presented by either of the parties in which and in which the bargaining process there would be an access to uh, industrial action. What does that uh, all mean? Don't, what are you talking about? Well, <laughs> uh, industrial awards exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are multiple employers, thousands of employers, yeah. covered by those 123, I think it is, yeah. industrial awards. So if the Act was amended, that would enable those awards to be regularly bargained, as has been done. Yeah, but every time, but, but I mean, you, but you know, that, that is the norm, you know, to bargain that you would expect. But if, uh, with the system that we've got at the moment, when the workers go to, you know, in good faith go and uh, bargain these EBAs, what they find is that you've got these employers that have all decided that, uh, and a system that backs them up, that uh, instead of uh, they put a, a stone wall up and then they say, oh, no, we can't negotiate with these intractable workers. We're going to throw them back on this award that's much lower than all the stuff that they've fought for before. So why are the awards a good thing? That's why I'm talking about what what are the types of changes that ah, we cool. made to okay. the Fair Work Act. Yeah, yeah. Tell us. The what... Labor is now considering, in the context of its national conference in yeah. Adelaide in December, well, what is going to be our policy on these matters? And as I was saying, multi-enterprise bargaining can take several forms. It might take a whole of industry form, or it might take a uh, multi-enterprise form which is not whole of industry, which could be, a, as I said, a supply chain or yep. a regional area. Yep. Uh, we don't know. We get some clues, though, about how uncomfortable the Parliamentary Labor Party is with all of this when we look closely at what uh, their main spokesperson said about it on The Insiders last Sunday in which he was very coy and cautious about how serious Labor would be and how determined and forthright it would be uh, to enable workers to have industrial power associated with multi-enterprise bargaining, no matter what form it took. So this is all now up for grabs. There is in the current Act a... Uh, an entitlement, a right to multi-enterprise bargaining, except that there is no protected industrial action rights associated with it, as there are, although there is terribly limited, as we all know, with enterprise bargaining. And in addition, other processes that are uh, modest rights for workers in the enterprise bargaining process are removed for multi-enterprise bargaining in the current Act. Now, it's interesting, that, that's interesting you should say this because there's a case at the moment for a CFMEU um, organiser, uh, 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 oh no, um, I can't remember, he's an official, who was organising uh, pay rates for a particular group of people uh, across a building site and uh, he's being charged with, under the cartel, uh, under 
laws to do with cartels. Did you know this? I'd love to have a closer look at that. That's fascinating because... Which is exactly what you're talking about. Well, the the Fair Work Commission is required to report on not just the amount of enterprise bargaining that goes on, but also on the amount of multi-enterprise bargaining that goes on. And in the and it's it reports every three years on this, and so we don't have the last couple of years that the report on that will come out any time. But for the period 2012 to 2015, which is you know the same laws as what we still have under the Fair Work Act, in the construction industry, there were 19 multi-enterprise agreements out of a total of. 5,290 all agreements, that is including enterprise agreements uh, and multi-enterprise agreements. So 0.4% of the agreements in the construction industry were multi-employer agreements. Mm. And what's going on with that particular organising, I'm not sure. I'd like to find out. Yeah, yeah. uh, That was just something that came up. Uh, But the reason why it's so tough You see, he might have been doing something that was a breach of the multi-enterprise bargaining law because he was trying to do it in a way that the law did not permit. Well, I don't know. I I, I mean, it's a case. But anyway, it's it's like they're scratching the bottom of the barrel to come up with methods of attacking reasonable behaviour within union organising. The big change that would occur, of course, in regard to what the current law says, is if it was amended by a prospective Labor government with the support of the Greens to do things like enable protected, well, at the very minimum, protected industrial action arrangements that would enable workers across lots of companies to use industrial action, and that would enable them to take uh, the pro- uh, remove the problem of competition on wages and conditions. Yeah, we're, and, we're, uh, we're, um, that's actually a good point to finish. I know that you probably got a lot more to talk about there, but uh, that is a very serious issue that you're talking about. So we should be watching what happens at the uh, Labor conference in December very closely to see not what. Just uh, watching, but willing to join in processes but that put pressure on the delegates to adopt a forthright and strong commitment to extending industrial action rights to workers so that, A, that they are the tough cop on the beat when it comes to grievances, including wage theft, and, B, they are, the t- they are enabled to be tough in their bargaining process uh, at the uh, multi-enterprise and, dare I say it, the award level. That would be a huge step forward to reverse inequality and also enable workers to engage with their employers in tackling the other big crisis of our time, and that is how to move quickly and fairly from a coal-based economy to a renewably-powered economy. Mm. Thanks for talking to us. And that's the last for the year, Don and uh, so uh, yeah (laughs) so happy Christmas I look forward to listening are you on next week yeah we're on next week yeah I'll be listening in and all the best and uh, 
happy, happy and safe uh, holiday season to all of our friends listening in on your wonderful program. Yeah, thanks, Don. Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, and we are indeed come to the end of the program. So we uh, we had a quite an action-packed program. We had your report about uh, West Pulpia and Independence Day celebrations. Yes. And uh, go down to Trades Hall on yep. at 1 p.m. Yes, and you'll, lots of fun. Yeah, and Rebecca will be there. Yep, I will. I'll <laughs> be there with my Zoom recorder. So if anybody wants to come and have a chat, please come and say hello. Yeah, that would be really nice. And we followed it up with uh, a, a Dr. Susie Latham from uh, Curtin University who was talking about divisive language by, by politicians in the wake of the uh, Burke Street attack and how uh, Muslim communities in Australia need to know that the rest of the community are not on their back every second of the day. We moved on to... Uh, the Coming Back Out Ball movie, which is going to be having its theatrical release at the Nova on Thursday, December the 6th. Get down there and have a look at it. It's a great film. Uh, and uh, we moved on to talk to Don Sutherland about uh, the state of play industrially in Australia. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we're going to go out with a track. What is it? Yes, oh, it's a George Telek track. Ah, uh, Free West Papua, yeah.